What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead. Inflation coming off the boil, the consumer holding up okay, and the market's been rallying. It's all good news, right? But maybe not. We're going to look at why and where to find value in case this isn't the start of a new bull market. Plus, China's challenges, the country trying to revive its economy and jumpstart population growth. But Neil Ferguson warning growth at all costs may come at a big cost to China. He joins us live to make his case. And more cracks forming on our housing front. We'll tell you what they are and what it means for the economy in the back half of the year. But we begin with today's markets. Bob Bassani has more down at the New York Stock Exchange. Bob? Two big stories today, Kelly. First, retail relief. And secondly, another midday rally. The rally keeps chugging along. Let me show you these retail stocks today. Guess what's in the leaderboard on the S&P 500? Walmart, number one. Home Depot and Target are also up there on the leaderboard. Walmart earnings beat. Comp sales accelerated. They love seeing that. Sequentially highlighted very strong back-to-school season. That's very good news. Home Depot also beat. They reiterated their full-year guidance. Even though we have a slowing housing market, the bottom line is some relief here that the consumer is still holding up. You see Target, TJX also on the upside. As for the overall markets, Another rally in the middle of the day. It happened yesterday. S&P 500 breaking out to the highest levels really since the end of April and early May. And look at that steady move up in the last month ever since we bottomed. That was June 16th. Why are we rallying so much? Because the apocalypse has not materialized. Three main issues that have prevented the apocalypse from happening. First, inflation is high, too high, but it's appears to be moderating. Secondly, the consumer has been hit by inflation concerns, but is still relatively strong. And earnings, well, were not negative. They're a little bit lower for 2022 and 2023, but they're still up and actually holding up fine right now. So look how the sentiment has changed. Remember in April, May and June, everyone was afraid we were going to have an intense recession. There was a lot of fear out there. Everyone de-risks. They lowered their exposure level. Now, wait a minute. Fast forward two months. Now it's the opposite. We have FOMO. We have fear of missing out. People want in, not out. They want more risk and there's short covering. There's another component here. There's some panic buying as some of the hedge funds and other investors who had been in cash are forced back into the market. See this panic buying? Suppose you were a hedge fund with 4% cash. You went to 20% cash. Well, wait a minute. There's too much cash now. S&P's up 13% this quarter. Maybe you're only up 10%. You're underperforming. You've got to be forced back into the market. Look how broad the rally has been. A number of big names, ARK Innovations, 50% off of its lows that we hit in June. We've seen other companies like consumer discretionary sectors, technology, transports, Small cap stocks are more than 20% off their lows. Maybe it's not a bull market, but it's certainly a very, very broad rally. As for most of the big tech stocks, well, Kelly, Apple's only 5% for a new low. Microsoft only about 15% from a new low. As I said, 
broad rally for the overall markets. Back to you. All right, Bob, thank you very much, our Bob Bassani. Well, even if we aren't in a recession right now, you still have to be careful in this market, says my next guest, who is looking at less well-known names that can add value to your portfolio. Joining me now is Nancy Pryle. She's co-CEO and senior portfolio manager at Essex Investment Management. Nancy, I almost want to ask you what stock makes you most upset right now when people talk about, you know, getting in or there's debate raging and you just think, no, you're all, this is kind of beside the point. Well, there's quite a quite a range of them. I mean, I think in general, what we've seen, not just on individual stocks, but in the market at all, is this level of extreme behavior. Either it's an apocalypse, the end of the world, we're going into a deep recession, or everything's great. Um, I think we've seen that in a lot of the stocks that have bounced back more sharply. We've also seen it now in energy, where we've had the worst one-month performance in energy year to date. What we try to do is take a little bit more of a middle-of-the-road approach. Find companies whose business is fundamentally doing better than it had been doing, where any economic growth is just an adder to the tailwinds that they're seeing from either the secular or the cyclical growth opportunities that they have right now. You know, a lot of the companies you like, are they're the kind of areas that sort of make my eyes glaze over. And I mean that as a compliment <laughs> because we hear so much about them, but it's hard to know who are the, the, the ones you can really trust, right? Especially when you're thinking, well, am I going to meet the management team? You know, I, I, who, am I looking at these track records? There's so much competition. For instance, Big Commerce, BIGC, yeah. one of your picks, you know, e-commerce for B2B, B2C makes sense. Right. Evercommerce, digital transformation across multiple industries. But again, how do you know? I mean, how do you know that these are going to be, you know, the best stewards of your capital and that you shouldn't just stick with some of the flashier names? Well, I'll say a couple things on that. One is, of course, you never know, right? With any management team, whether it's a small cap company or a large cap company, as we've learned over the years, you don't really know any more than what you can discern by going through the balance sheet, the income statement, making sure that all the numbers really add up and that business is as good as it sounds. But what we also know is that all of these big um, names that everybody knows in the marketplace, whether it's Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, Google, um, they were all small companies once. They were all small, untested companies with untested management teams. What we want to look for are business models that make sense. We want to look for metrics that support what the management team says. We do want some external validation, whether it's things like the Gartner Quadrants or peer reviews in the case of medical device companies to make it uh, help us understand how good the product is. And then we let the evidence guide us and we don't want to pay too much for those growth rates. Yeah. In the case of big commerce and ever commerce, they're selling into somewhat niche parts of their businesses where they have some protection against the big guys. Yeah. And Treese Medical, TMCI, you know, I chuckle because you're saying here they have a new system to correct bunions. I go, sounds great. <laughs> That, that's a, you know, innovation, especially in the medical part of the economy, you can absolutely see the attractiveness here. But I want to go back to uh, Evercommerce, which came public with a rush yes. of companies one year ago. Are you yes. finding that if we kind of give a second look to some of these names as we clear out some of the flashier, glitzier stuff that that didn't work and uh, uh, the whole group kind of gets tarred with a bad rep that you're able to find investments that you think will be durable and, and successful in the long run? 
Absolutely. And both big commerce and ever commerce fit that mold of companies that came public in a rush. They came public at valuations that did not make sense, that were really extended. But within that wreckage, and we've seen this again, not only in this cycle, but in previous cycles, as well as in the 99-2000 cycle, out of that wreckage, you can find some gems that will reemerge as superior growth companies. We happen to think big commerce and ever commerce are two of them, but it's a great place to go fishing for companies with good business models, improving fundamentals and valuations that today make sense. Yeah, and MRC Global, ticker, ticker MRC is one that it, yeah. everyone will understand intuitively. It's more of an industrial name, energy transformation, and there you have it. I guess my final big quiz, picture question for you is, what do you think about the market here from a valuation perspective in terms of uh, where inflation and rate are headed and that all of this recession talk you know what is your sort of feeling about the kind of returns people should expect over the next six to nine months so I think on the big cap indices the returns could be more challenged for the next six to nine months the S&P is now selling at 18 times earnings so it's not overvalued it's fairly valued we do think inflation has peaked and is coming down, and our bet is actually that inflation will come down more quickly than what people expect. Having said that, we really don't know any more than anybody else what the Fed will do, but we think the risks are that although the Fed will moderate, they will continue to raise rates. And so this very narrow landing path to a soft landing remains very narrow. Our guess is the economy will slow somewhat, not go into a recession, but we'll get to very low growth. Having said that, small cap stocks are still very inexpensive at 15 times earnings. Their earnings growth prospects are um, much stronger actually than the larger cap um, counterparts. They're very well positioned in terms of their exposure to the industrial parts of the economy, which have the tailwinds of government spending, as well as the reshoring trend, which has gotten increasing mention by company managements, um, particularly in the last quarter calls, um, and are an overlooked area of the marketplace. So we think that those um, small cap stocks should outperform their large cap peers and hopefully will give us something on the order of high single digit returns. Yeah, exactly. Nancy, great to check in with you as always. We appreciate it. Thank you. Nancy Pryle with Essex Investment Management. Meantime, higher rates, higher construction costs and slowing sales have officially led us into a housing recession, according to the National Association of Home Builders. Builder sentiment saying for an eighth straight month in August, the longest stretch since the 07 collapse. Housing starts fell 10 percent in July, nearly to their lowest level since 2021. Where do we go from here? Let's ask Danielle Hale. She's chief economist at Realtor.com. Danielle, it's great to see you again. And uh, yeah, this is this is the part of the economy kind of definitively say, you know, recession, end of cycle, something like that. Yeah, housing starts are absolutely pulling back, especially when you look at the single family side of things. Now, what's interesting is that we have a, a combination thing going on here. So overall, total starts um, were down quite a bit. Uh, but if you look at the broad moderation that we're seeing in single family, it's being somewhat offset by increases in multifamily construction. So builders are pivoting uh, to look for areas of opportunity, which they're finding in the multifamily sector. And at the same time, they're trying to manage pipelines. We've got a record number of homes under construction. So even as permits and starts are kind of moderating, we're going to still see a fair amount of activity as builders work to wrap up projects that are already underway. All right. So that, you know, we've talked a lot with uh, our Diana Olick about this, but this idea that the one big difference this time versus 07 might be that prices don't collapse. And I wonder if we can get any kind of 
more insight on that? Because it's probably the biggest factor for current homeowners, for people who are trying to figure out whether to wait to buy. You know, is there going to be the shoe to drop or not? Yeah, I think that is a really challenging question to answer in today's market. There are a lot of reasons to expect that prices will uh, maintain in, at the end of this cycle, unlike they did at the end of the previous cycle. We don't have the same amount of leverage. In fact, homeowners are sitting on a record level of equity today. Um, so that's very different. We, we don't have uh, a lot of um, underwriting problems that we had in the last housing cycle. And also we have record low vacancy rates. If you look at uh, the number of homes that are vacant and available, it's at a record low for homeowners. It's also very close to a long-term low in the rental side of the market. So housing supply is tight, really, no matter how you look at it. It's going to be a drag, you know, housing activity for a while, broadly speaking. W what do you think the builders should be doing in this environment? So builders are looking forward ahead and finding that there's less buyer demand as costs go up, as mortgage rates are higher than they have been. And buyers are kind of grappling with that and maybe um, a little bit less eager to get into the housing market as they have been over the last couple of years. So builders are, are taking that into account and slowing the rate of permits that they're filing for, slowing the rate of housing starts at their beginning, trying to wrap up projects that are underway and trying to be mindful on pricing. So making sure that they're in market segments and in areas where they can still find some profitability despite the slowing market. And what's interesting is that we're seeing a geographical shift in where buyers are really active. We just released our hottest zip codes report today, and it's showing that instead of the Sun Belt, the most competitive real estate markets now are concentrated in the Northeast and in particular in New England, as buyers are looking for affordability and finding it outside of those markets that have been hot over the last couple of years. Yeah, and where, how are we on that trend? Because I see sort of two different stories kind of anecdotally forming. And the one is that there's still this strong secular shift from people who have housing equity can move to lower cost parts of the country. But the other is some of those lower cost um, areas that we're doing very well are the first where we're kind of seeing trends normalize and, and drop substantially, which would you say is the right narrative? I think it really depends. So in some of those smaller markets in the West that benefited from a lot of out-migration from California, those are markets where we're seeing a little bit more of an adjustment. On the East Coast, we're still seeing a significant outward interest from metros like the Boston Metro, New York City, Washington, D.C. And so that's why those Northeastern markets are generally doing quite well. So it really just depends on where you are in the country which of those trends you're going to be following. All right. It's regional, they used to say. <laughs> Danielle, thanks for joining us today. Danielle Hale with Realtor.com. Coming up, the latest economic data out of China suggests a changing of the guard could be on the horizon. Neil Ferguson joins us with a key indicator he's watching and what it means for the future of the world's second largest economy. Plus, the retail earnings parade continues with Target, Lowe's, and TJ Maxx parent company on deck. Can they keep up the momentum after Walmart and Home Depot? That's ahead in earnings exchange. As we head to break, here's a look at markets. Dow's up 275 points, by far the outperformer today. The S&P up a third of 1%. The Nasdaq down by 10 points, and the Russell only up by about a point. We're back after this. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. 
Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Roger that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back to The Exchange. Just yesterday, we got that news out of China that its central bank is cutting rates to stimulate economic growth. But it's not the only growth the government is after. There's also a big push to grow its population. And if that doesn't work, any short-term pickup in economic growth now is kind of beside the point. Neil Ferguson just wrote about it. He's the senior fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institute. And he joins me now. Neil, it's good to have you back. Welcome. Kelly. I think we should also point out, you know, it's a little bit of the pot calling the kettle black here. Our demographic trends are pretty bad as well, but China's are a lot worse. How quickly is this going to come home to roost? Quicker than was previously thought. Uh, If you look at the United Nations population prospects, which is an annual attempt to forecast uh, world population trends, for years, uh, they expected China's population to keep growing all the way through this decade and to a peak in 2031. But in the latest edition, which just came out, they're accepting what others have been arguing for some time, that actually uh, the peak is here. Uh, The UN thinks it's actually just two years out. Uh, Others, in fact, think it's already happened, uh, like the the researcher Yi Fuzian, Uh, who's been arguing that it's actually been declining since 2018. But the bottom line is that whichever of the projections you look at that the UN produces, the population of China is going to fall dramatically from now until the end of the century. The the medium forecast, which assumes, uh, in fact, a slight recovery in fertility, is of a decline of 46%, nearly half, by the end of the century, in a worst-case scenario where especially fertility flatlines at its current low rate, population of China falls by two-thirds. It's almost like the clock gets turned back to 1950. This is far worse than the comparable figures for the United States. I was just at an extremely interesting conference of the Aspen Economic Strategy Group, and much of the discussion was around falling fertility, uh, higher mortality, and, of course, a reduction in in immigration. But when you line up the U.S. projections with the Chinese ones, the Chinese are far worse. Yeah, I like the projection where ours uh, beats expectations. And if theirs is as bad as it could be, our population can literally be bigger by the end of the century, which is crazy to think about. So let's kind of bring this back to the policy choices now. And yesterday we had Stephen Roach on the program and he kind of said in passing, you know, this demographic challenge is the much bigger one for them, but it's outside of Xi Jinping's control. Do you believe that's true, that it's outside of I his do. control? I mean, they, they, they cancelled the policy, which came in back in the 
paying. They cancelled that just, uh, what, six years ago uh, and replaced it with a two-child policy. Too late. People are not responding to that change in the law. In fact, Chinese fertility is currently so low that it's, it's well below the replacement rate, which is just over two children on average per woman. And I don't see any policy that's going to raise that fertility rate. After all, we have many examples of countries around the world that ran into this problem way before China. And all kinds of policy experiments have been, uh, have been tried of the sort that the Chinese are now trying, incentives, tax breaks, or support for childcare, and it doesn't work. Because once the population has got down to that low level, uh, the population growth rate has gone down to that low level, it's extremely hard to get it back. Yeah. What's going on here? It's women choosing careers over uh, motherhood. It's families deciding, well, one child really is enough because of all the costs of bringing up kids. Those arguments are extremely hard for any government, even the mighty government of the Chinese Communist Party, to overcome. Yeah, no, and I do, with interest, follow countries like Hungary, which are trying to kind of target it and see if that uh, has any success. And you mentioned China's problem is also worse because of their lopsided population, many more uh, young males right. than young females. So final question. This week, they're unveiling um, another suite of measures to try to boost the economy, some interest rate cuts. We know Xi Jinping faces his third term coming up here, and he's trying to sort of build a, a more common prosperity economy. What are we really to read into these near-term initiatives then? And what are the implications for geopolitical fallout uh, like Taiwan? Xi Jinping has prioritized for years now the power of the Chinese Communist Party over economic growth. He made that cold clown of a success company in China, the tech companies. He made that call and he really accepted there was likely to be a shift in the real estate development sector. He even made that call when he clamped down on the very, very vibrant private sector education uh, uh, part of the economy. And so he's, he's clearly somebody who more than the power of the party and the growth economy. Finally, of course, he wrote COVID policy, which has turned out to be disastrous. And the more infectious variants is killing China near zero. If it weren't for the export channel, this, this would really be uh, a, a year of recession for China. And I think for all these reasons, China is in a very bad equilibrium where the priorities of the leadership translate into much lower growth than they thought was possible. They were targeting 5.5%. Not going to happen. They had to scrap the target. From a geopolitical point of view, of course, it means that the United States can be a little less worried about being overtaken by China than perhaps it has been in recent years. As for showdowns over Taiwan, I think the longer this takes, the longer Xi Jinping waits, the more difficult this actually is going to become for China. So I think the Asian century just got cancelled and maybe the United States has a slightly longer lease on the on the role of number one. The Asian century just got canceled. Uh, for anyone who struggled a little bit to follow uh, your sound, Neil, I, I think that perfectly sums it up, and I, I felt it was worth sticking with it. And thank you for your time today. Um, it's great to have you on. We appreciate it. Thanks, Kelly. Neil Ferguson from Stanford. Still ahead, oil prices have collapsed 30% from their highs. Plunging gasoline prices have helped give the consumer some relief. But will it last into the fall? That's ahead. But first, the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan last year forced thousands of refugees to evacuate here. How are they making ends meet? We'll look at some of the challenges they're still facing in this labor market. The exchange is back after this. Canva presents stories to keep you up at 
It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back, everybody. Markets are pretty much at session highs. The Dow's up almost 300 points. And look at the disparity we're seeing here where names like Home Depot and Walmart are helping the blue chips with that almost 1% gain now. The S&P up a third of 1%, the Nasdaq lower. And we do have names like Zoom and Moderna, about 5% to the downside, which is weighing a little bit on the broader markets. Now, in terms of some of the movers we're watching, it's the same story that it's been for the past week or so, but it just keeps getting more dramatic. Bed Bath & Beyond now spiking 60% today. It's to $25 a share, and this is its heaviest trading volume day ever. It's already traded more than 270 million shares. That's one and a half more than we saw yesterday, which was 165 million, and that was the previous record. It's also about nine times the 30-day average of around 28 million shares. They're not only on pace for their best day ever, they've quintupled since August 1st for their best month ever. Yeah, 400% gain. And in case you were wondering, GameStop, meanwhile, only up 10% today and 30% in August. So maybe Think of this what you will. Carnival shares meantime are spiking midday for kind of a real reason. The company said booking activity nearly doubled what it was this time in 2019 after they eased their COVID protocols, seeing a business benefit as a result. And Snowflake is falling. Snowflake is falling after UBS downgraded the name to neutral, saying cloud computing spend could slow. Uh, some bigger implications of that, of course, that four and a half percent drop. You can read more about that call at CNBC.com slash pro. Now let's get to Tyler Matheson for a CNBC. News update. Ty? Boy, Bed Bath & Beyond moving up. That's a lot of towels, man. That is a lot of towels. All right, let's talk about President Biden heading back to the White House after spending several days on vacation down in South Carolina. He's uh, there to sign what Democratic sponsors are calling the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. Attorney General Merrick Garland carefully considered whether to seek a search warrant for Mar-a-Lago, holding many meetings with senior Justice Department and FBI officials over a period of a few weeks. That's according to a senior DOJ official who tells NBC News Garland wasn't being indecisive but did want to carefully consider what is clearly a controversial move. Federal agents raided a Miami-area pharmacy today. A source tells Reuters investigators believe it is the largest source of illegal OxyContin in the state of Florida. And the NBA's schedule for its upcoming season has just been released with no games on Election Day in November. It's intentional, with the league encouraging fans to get out and vote. Kelly, back to you. How many people weren't voting because of an NBA game tie? Not very many, I wouldn't think. I think you could probably squeeze both in. We're getting closer to a national holiday, aren't we? Uh, I think, truly, I think voting should open on Friday evenings and go through Sunday evenings. Just and, uh, stay away the polls, from the booze while you're... Just do, just do it on the weekend. Yeah. <laughs> do it, on, it gives everybody ample time. No, it makes a lot of sense. Tyler, I will see you soon. See you later. Tyler Matheson. Still ahead, Target, Lowe's, and TJX all on deck with results. All three stocks having a great quarter. But my next guest says one of them could dip post-results. And when it does, he's a buyer. The name and what to watch is next in Earnings Exchange.
Welcome back to The Exchange. Three more big retailers report results tomorrow morning. Will they be able to carry the positive momentum from Walmart and Home Depot's beats today? We've got the action, the story, and the trade on Target, Lowe's, and TJX today. Let's start with Target. Last quarter, the stock's report went tumbling 25% after having its second worst day ever. And they've been warning about overstock and a slowdown in consumer spending for the past couple months. Should we expect another dramatic after-hours move or disclosure? CNBC.com retail and consumer reporter Melissa Repko is back. She's got the story on all three names for us today. And Boris Schlossberg has our trades. He is managing director at BK Asset Management and a CNBC contributor. Welcome to both of you. And Melissa, let's start with Target and uh, some pretty high expectations now. Yes, investors will expect a progress support on Target's inventory, kind of like what we heard today from Walmart. Like Walmart, Target cut its profit outlook and said that it had a glut of unwanted stuff. So investors will want to hear, is it selling through that stuff with markdowns? And is it going to be in a better position going into back to school and the holiday season? Target does tend to have a slightly higher income consumer than Walmart, which may help insulate it during this inflationary period. On the other hand, it sells a lot more discretionary merchandise like apparel and electronics, and that could make it more vulnerable if people are spending more on grocery and essentials. Boris Schlossberg, what do you do? You buy the stock here, you like it? I think it's rallying into the earnings and it could be ripe for a, for a very minimum survey in line surprise. Mm-hmm. They've been warning consistently because I think they really are trying to manage their inventory. I mean, their weakness in many ways is their strength, the fact that they're so strong and discretionary. They're really, really, are outstanding as far as being able to curate tremendously uh, valuable goods. And their shopping experience, I think, is far superior to Walmart's. That having been said, Walmart is really now trying to become a platform company. And you saw um, its uh, earnings really coming from all those areas. I don't think Target is anywhere near there. They're really trying to struggle with their inventory at this point. I think it may be another quarter before they stabilize the ship. So to me, stock rallying into the earnings, they're really going to have to surprise to the upside hard in order for the stock to go further. We could have a sell-off. That having been said, though, on a long-term basis, great company, great stock. So any kind of a sharp dip here could definitely be a good opportunity to buy. All right. So that was our little tease there. You've answered it for us uh, in terms of trading target (laughs) for us. Thanks. Let's move along to Lowe's now. A similar story. It's already up into the report. Why? Because Home Depot posted a strong beat this morning. But Lowe's only gets about a quarter of its business from the pro segment, while it's about half for Home Depot. Melissa, you think that'll be a headwind? Yes, that's definitely a different dynamic between the two companies. On the one hand, we heard today from Home Depot that people are still willing willing to spend on home improvement projects, which is something that's been going strong quarter after quarter. But with Lowe's, it does rely much more heavily on the do-it-yourself consumer. And that kind of customer may skip the landscaping project or repairing the sink as they're able to travel again, dine out again, and just decide to relax as they enjoy the summertime. So Lowe's has been trying to grow its home professional business and we'll be listening to hear if it's having success to make it business a little bit more stable if do-it-yourself customers decide to take a quarter or two off. Yeah, Boris, I think it's all pros because no one else can navigate the stores. I mean, you should see me. I go in there and I pull out my phone app and then I look up the item and I say, here's where I am. Now, where in the store is it? And then I, fi- you know, I try to follow, okay, aisle A38 in order to find whatever no, the, the it is. Trick is to- 
is the trick is to always corral a salesperson and have yeah. them walk you through it. That's that's <laughs> the only way you ever navigate through Lowe's. But you know, Lowe's is actually supposed to you know miss both sequentially and on a year-to-year basis, and I think that's probably right. Especially everybody, of course, talks about the pro versus DUI, and that is true that only 25% of there is pro. But if you look at the subcomponents like Sherwin Williams, Scotts Miracle Grow, Trex, all of the suppliers to Lowe's, they've all guided lower. That to me could be a, a sign that the stock is going to uh, is going to miss as far as expectations go. So to me, that's a, right now. Wall Street has been relatively wary of the stock. It's kind of up now on enthusiasm over Home Depot, and I think that could be misplaced. So I would stay away at this point. What about if I may follow up on that, Boris? What are your thoughts about Home Depot itself, given some of the headwinds you mentioned? Yeah, I mean, you know, housing clearly is starting to slow down. I, I think, you know, for the first time, you're actually able to get a contractor to, uh, you know, pay attention to you. So I think all of those, you know, uh, big cyclical wins are definitely having an impact. You know, that having been said, though, there's still a tremendous amount of uh, demand, consumer demand going forward. So I think both of the companies are actually excellent companies on a long-term basis. But you're right. I do think the next couple of quarters, especially with, how, with so much housing supply coming on board um, and a slow down in um, uh, in projects could have a way a weighing impact on them. All yes. right. We're still waiting to get the back steps repaired. So I will report back when uh, when we have a glut of people buying for that business. And finally, let's turn our attention to TJX today, the parent company of TJ Maxx and Home Goods. It's down about 12 percent this year, which actually makes it the relative outperformer of this group. But will they guide down? I guess, Melissa, that's one of the big questions. Yes. Guidance will really be the interesting thing to watch for TJ Maxx because Two of its categories, the home category and the apparel category, have been showing some signs of softness and have also had a lot of markdowns at Target and uh, Walmart and a lot of other places. So is it able to keep that those sales going even as demand shows some signs of pulling back? On the other hand, it could benefit from all this excess inventory we're hearing about because you know, it gets a lot of that merchandise and puts it on its shelves. So it may have a lot, an abundance of high-quality merchandise in the coming months. And it could also benefit from a more value-mindedness of consumers as they go into back-to-school in the holiday season, which is when a lot of people are looking for gifts and perhaps looking for new outfits, too. Yeah, Boris, this was a perennial outperformer last decade. It's been more of a, a struggle yeah. stock lately. What do you th- What do you do with it? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, Melissa's right that, you know, Target's and Walmart's woes are TJX's blessings in a way because they're going to get some interesting inventory going forward. But there's also another big problem that they've had in terms of transportation and labor costs going up. So the margins are starting to get a little squeezed. And I think that's the big thing. The, there's no doubt that consumers going down market at this point. The question is how much of consumer demand is going to overcome the uh, the cost factor uh, going forward. And that and the other thing is, uh, how much of consumer demand they see sustained through the Christmas season? That will be the you know the big open question. On top of all that, as you said, the stock is very favorably valued. I mean, it's it's some would say it's 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 pretty much overvalued at this point. So there's a, there's a lot of from the valuation point of view, there's a lot of risk here coming into these prices, especially if they just guide to expectation. I think for the stock to really perform well, they got to beat expectation. That's going to be a tall order for them going into the, uh, into the All areas. right. There you have it. That's the layout. Uh, it'll be a fun morning. See how they do. Guys, thank you for now. We appreciate it. Boris Schlossberg and our Melissa Repco. 
Quick market alert for you. Take a look at oil and you might have guessed down again. We're talking $86 a barrel now, the lowest level since January. Yes, we're up about 15% on the year, but a remarkably low move given high prices for nat gas, other commodities, the war uh, between Russia and Ukraine that's still playing out. And again, a key barometer for consumer spending. The lower this goes, the more favorable the outlook. Up next, a year after the Taliban regained control of Afghanistan, we'll get a look at the struggles refugees face here in the U.S., including finding jobs that match their skill sets. The exchange will be right back. Welcome back. It's been one year since the U.S. troop withdrawal from Afghanistan. And for a lot of the refugees who have settled here in the States, their lives look pretty different a year on out. Kayla Tausche is here with a look at how their jobs in particular have changed. Yeah, they have to make ends meet. Kelly, some 81,000 Afghan nationals left behind their savings, their careers, and in some cases their families to start over here in the U.S. And after three months of government support ran out, most took what are called survival jobs just to pay the bills. Upwardly Global, an organization that helps immigrant professionals find work, says the result is many are underemployed. That means they're either not working or they're working as a rideshare driver or a cashier or a truck vendor. And that's a challenge. Is that enough to make ends meet for many of them? That's not enough to make ends meet, but it's also a loss for our economy. I mean, if those individuals were employed at their skill level, they would be generating $10 billion in tax revenue a year. One of those evacuees is Shapur. He's a former Afghan Air Force pilot whose last name we're withholding for security reasons. He trained with U.S. forces in Texas and Alabama and flew alongside them in country. Now in Scottsdale, Arizona, he's a flight line technician. It is just working in the ground and I want to be in the air. Right now I'm uh, servicing their crafts, like if they need fuel, if they need any other service, we do it. But I accept this job because it's still in the aviation community. It's His dream is to become a commercial pilot, and he told me flying a fixed-wing aircraft would be far easier than flying a Black Hawk helicopter in a war zone, which is what he's used to. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, how many refugees broadly are we speaking? What are the chances someone like him could actually be able to take that next? It was just a matter of time and training, or are the hurdles much greater than time, that? Time, training, money. So far, of the 81,000, it's unclear exactly how many of them are employed, but Shapur tells us that there are several dozen of his friends from the Afghan Air Force who came to the U.S. Many are between Texas, California, Virginia. Most are working for Uber or Lyft. But for someone like them to become a commercial air pilot, it's an uphill battle. About $95,000 in fees for training, wow. two years to train. And they don't have their flight records with them. They left everything back in the country. So it is a lot that they have to do. And it's going to be difficult, if not impossible, according to Upwardly Global, without a company to sponsor them in that You know, flight. I was just reading, I think it was in this area, Northeast, it was a, a pilot shortage just last night that was bringing things to a halt. You think at some point, wouldn't the airline subsidize the cost of this training if the shortage is that bad? I also wonder for some of these refugees, where this kind of calamity befell them, do they want to stay here for the long run? Was this ultimately seen as a way in or a way to kind of 
do what they can until they can maybe someday get back home. Well, I asked that question to nearly everyone that we interviewed, whether it was in Mesa, Arizona, where Shapur is located in the Virginia area, where we talked to several refugees as well, um, or here in the New York City area. And most of them said that when they made the decision to leave, it was a permanent decision. They still have family left in Afghanistan, but the idea is that if they're still in Afghanistan, they want to bring them here to the U.S., not go back the other direction, because the assumption is that Taliban will be in power for the long run right. and without some sort of uh, change in power down the road, it's just not going to be uh, it's not going to be a good life for them, especially for the women we interviewed. Yeah, we were just talking to Neil Ferguson a little while ago about um, immigration being part of the demographic challenge. And here's a perfect example of the possibilities he's talking about. Kayla, thank you. It's good to see you as good well. You. Kayla Tausche. Coming up, the national average gasoline price has dropped below four dollars a gallon, but it could be short lived, according to one analyst. Why he says pain at the pump could return and oil prices aren't exclusively to blame. That's next. Welcome back, everybody. The national gasoline price sitting at $3.95 a gallon, falling below that $4 mark last week. And despite crude now at $86 a barrel, the lowest level since January, we could have states seeing gas prices tick up as early as this week. According to my next guest, let's bring in Patrick DeHaan. He's head of petroleum analysis at Gas Buddy. He's sort of like the, the king of gas Twitter. Can I call you that, Patrick? That's how I, the, you keep us up to date. <laughs> I try to keep us up to date. Things have been moving so much in the last couple of days and actually kind of a surprising development, a little bit earlier than expected. But last week, we saw the wholesale price of gasoline in some regions jump 45 cents a gallon. No surprise that yesterday started to see increases, Indiana and Ohio. And actually, that 61-day streak, according to our data, ended yesterday. The national wow. average jumped a whopping penny. Uh, but we are kind of now seeing the bottom out. Now, oil prices yesterday and today are back down. So it's not impossible that it was just a one-day blip. I do think that maybe we'll start to go a little bit lower with oil prices now paving the way for a further drop. It's been remarkable to me how fast and furiously we've fallen. I mean, it took us a couple of weeks to talk about why gas prices hadn't dropped, and then it feels like they've been on a plunge ever since. Is the SPR release part of this? Or my understanding was there's still this refining bottleneck, and we should have had, you know, I, I'm just curious where we stand on a couple of those challenges. Well, you know, the SPR is maybe not actively pushing prices down. I think it's kind of accounting tricks to move it from one pool to another, right? From the SPR to commercial inventories. We're also exporting a good amount of those barrels as well, which helps alleviate global supply tightness. So I don't know that it's doing a lot to actively drive prices down, maybe a little something. I think a bigger change here that we've seen over the last nine weeks with prices declining is renewed concerns over the U.S. economy. The Federal Reserve raising interest rates now twice at a level of 75 basis points. Uh, a lot of, of consensus was that that would slow the economy down. Well, not according to the jobs market. I think that's where a lot of the drop in oil has come. Not only that, but Russia continues to sell oil to China and India. Uh, and that was maybe unexpected in the early innings of those sanctions. So that oil is flowing. Really, supply has been modest. I mean, it is quite a bit lower, but gasoline supplies also. Prior to the blip, uh, gasoline supplies had been increasing in June and July. Of course, last week, they declined by 5 million barrels, which is, I think, why we saw the big jump in wholesale gas prices in some areas of the country. Yeah. Where are we in terms of inventories for both gasoline and diesel? Because we had heard earlier this summer that parts of the country, like in the Northeast, on the diesel front, were close to running out. 
Yeah, certainly the diesel tightness is is persistent, and that's a problem that will probably continue to last into the latter half of this year, especially as some of those northeastern heating oil tanks start to get filled up. Diesel demand, uh, that's more the uh, tide of the economy. So I don't expect much improvement in diesel. That's just because we've also lost a lot of global refining capacity, especially in Europe. Gasoline inventories, on the other hand, are looking fairly good. So gasoline may be the bright spot, but diesel, heating oil, are still likely to be challenged as we move into the, the last quarter of the year. Yeah, and I know obviously the kind of risk is there if we get hurricanes or just kind of general forces that push up the oil or the gasoline prices in the fall. We'll just have to wait and see. How has demand been? Um, maybe you could kind of compare with year ago levels or something like that. But uh, we had a previous analyst, I think uh, earlier this week, who said demand hadn't actually snapped back as quickly as he had ex- would have thought because of the lower prices. And uh, how would you describe demand for gasoline and what it tells us about the consumer? Well, Kelly, a lot of analysts look at EIA implied demand metrics, which measure how gasoline disappears, not how it's being sold. And according to GasBuddy data, which does look at retail gasoline demand via transactions from our payments card, demand is below norms, maybe 5 to 8% below norms. Uh, from from where we've been in the last five to 10 years. It's a little bit weaker than last year, but not as weak as the EIA implied demand metrics pointed out. Now, we did see those implied demand numbers jump up last week because suddenly there was a jump in wholesale prices, which forced stations to fill up. Uh, Hmm. Overall, now, I think we are starting our seasonal decline for gasoline. That's not rare this time of year. Schools start going back into session. Vacations are wrapping up. So that seasonal decline will continue But I think with prices now lower, the gap between this year and last year is going to start to narrow. Very, very interesting. Patrick, good to check in with you. Thanks so much. Thanks, Kelly. Patrick DeHaan with GasBuddy. Still ahead, the S&P up about 13% from the June lows, but there's a warning sign starting to flash for stocks. The potential red flag for the rally next. Welcome back. Want to get to one more thing before we go here. Uh, since the June lows, high-yield bond funds have seen consistent inflows, moving higher in step with stocks. Let's get to Seema Modi with a look at what this is telling us about the broader market. Seema? Kelly, some interesting moves. Four weeks of inflows into high-yield credit, about $10 billion, according to Bank of America. And that's also allowed credit spreads to tighten. The takeaway for, for equity investors is now you can actually start building on, on, on an argument to say, look, maybe there is a scenario for soft lending. However, fast money trader Guy Adami says you're starting to see some potential cracks in the credit market. The widely followed high yield IHYG ETF in the last week has underperformed the broader stock market. Just yesterday, stocks ended higher while the HYG turned lower. On days when the market was up significantly, such as yesterday, you know, the HYG was actually lower. And we saw a pretty interesting reversal in the HYG late last week as well. So it's just something I'm watching. I don't think the all clear sign is there, despite the fact that the S&P 500 has rallied some 700 points or so off its low. I still think we should be focused on credit and all things around credit. Kelly, so far, no signs of real distress in high yield. Bank of America's credit stress indicator has declined in recent weeks, but remains towards the top 
end of the range. That's why this is a part or a corner of the market that investors are watching closely to see what it can tell us about this broader rebound in the stock market and if it can last. And that companies can tap that window while it's open, right? $6.5 billion, I'm so glad you mentioned this, Kelly, has been raised just in the last 48 hours. There are a number of companies raising debt beyond Royal Caribbean, which raised $1.5 billion at an interest rate of 11%. Today, Goldman Sachs went to the market, as did Ford Motor. So there are a lot of companies that are starting to raise more debt and take advantage of this favorable market condition, because who knows how long it will last. Right, and that's how the bull market keeps going for now. Seema, thank you very much, our Seema Modi. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.